0: All right, well, um, I just want to welcome everybody here tonight. Uh, A quick reminder to uh, those of you who are here or watching online, um, you can use the same link and token to get in that you got in last night. Uh, We had a little bit of a mix-up the night before when we ended the session, so I'm just making you aware of that. I had a few questions about it. Of course, if you're here, you figured that out. Um, uh, Other than that, uh, I'd love to see comments and feedback in the forum. And uh, just another reminder that we are doing this ne- next week as well on the same schedule. So um, we're looking forward to seeing you then. Um, and lastly, if you're having any problems, just let us know in the forum over that. Um, our first speaker tonight is Ken. Um, he's going to be talking to us about object-oriented JavaScript and Canvas. Uh, it should be really fun and really interesting. So uh, we'll let Ken take it away.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. Um, so there's uh, there's uh, so much I could cover, but uh, we're going to try to make it uh, fit into this time and have questions and answers afterwards. So um, one thing uh, I wanted to point out is uh, you know JavaScript is many things and many people, and um, you know you go to Wiki, find out about JavaScript. Could step where you find everything out, right? But uh, you know points out that. It actually has a mix of features that makes it a multi-paradigm language, supporting object-oriented imperative, and functional programming styles. And uh, there's a lot of people who are using JavaScript just to manipulate a DOM or uh, just throw a few functions together. But uh, we had the opportunity to build some systems um, where you need some pretty good uh, models of what you're building. And found that using object-oriented JavaScript is actually pretty powerful. And that's mostly what I'm gonna talk about using uh, one of the latest things we've done as a, a basic running example. The, uh, the URL down here, if you haven't uh, been there, there's a Mozilla page, object oriented um, JavaScript, there we go, somebody's having a problem with my audio. Is there something else that needs to be done, Chuck, before I go any further?
0: I can hear you, but you're a little bit quiet.
1: Okay. Um, not sure what else to do here.
0: Where's your microphone situated?
1: On my computer, right in front of me. Uh,
0: um, let's see if we can change some uh, some settings here. That or if you have some way of getting a microphone closer to your face.
1: Right. Now that's going to be harder in short order. I thought everything was good here. So um, let
0: me see if there's an option here. Or me to turn you up or something. How about that? Is that better? Oh, that's
1: better. Oh, that's, better. that's much better.
0: That's much better. Like better for everybody else out there. Yep. Yep. All right. Good.
1: Sorry for that interruption. So anyway, uh, so this is a just a Bitly link to the Mozilla page, which is an intro to Object Oriented JavaScript. If uh, you haven't done any Object Oriented JavaScript, it's a good place to start. And um, mentioned object-oriented JavaScript and Canvas. I'm not going to get into a lot of the details of Canvas, um, but we are certainly going to be using that and showing you how uh, you actually can test things on Canvas if you do it in an object-oriented way. So uh, the Canvas element is out there. A lot of people would uh, are sitting on top of Canvas. It's been out there for a long time. But um, there's a lot of other frameworks that kind of hide, hide Canvas from you. And we're not going to talk about those frameworks. Again, I'm just going to give you an overview of how we use object-oriented JavaScript on top of Canvas and do some pretty cool stuff. And uh, the title of this talk was Hot Draw Revisited. Now, Hot Draw came from, uh, I guess, the mother of all object-oriented languages, Smalltalk. And And uh, there are a couple uh, what I call my, my friends the reflective practitioners, Ward Cunningham and Kent Beck. And they had the privilege of working at a research lab where they were given uh, a lot of uh, freedom for a while back at Tektronix in the 80s. And they would have a time where they'd have a week where they didn't really have anything that they had to do. So they would take a week and say, "Let's do, what are we going to do this week? And uh, one week they decided that uh, MacDraw had just come out. And they said, yeah, I wonder what, what it would take to build something like that in small talk. And they spent a few, built, few days building it and uh they just thought it was really hot so they called it hot draw and um it kind of became a legend so ward cunningham joined knowledge systems for a little while in the late 80s where i was working and uh ward implemented again at ksc and then uh, myself and several others extended it uh various people did it in small talk um there's a years a lot of different people have just said hey let's rebuild this and um did it in Java. You know, when I when I started doing Java in the late '90s, I, I built a, a couple versions of that in, in Java. And uh, other languages have done it too. And you can you know search around for different people who've done things in, in, Java in uh, based on HotDraw. But um, I'm gonna kind of talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of something like HotDraw. HotDraw was and is a simple, powerful drawing framework. Since then, there there are many other frameworks and libraries for drawing, and you know one might say, so why not just use them if you have to do anything with drawing? Um, and the reason I would say is that you know there's lots of applications for direct manipulation of drawings that have nothing to do with drawing. Um, you know, and I'm going to give you some examples of that. So uh, you know, how does one apply direct manipulation of drawings to another underlying? domain and test it. And um, we've had a couple opportunities. A few years ago, we had um, the opportunity to work with the Friday Institute of Educational Innovation. Um, and uh, we're not going to show the video tonight uh, due to time. But what they did was uh, they're building learning trajectories and trying to figure out how to, well, they, they kind of know, in general, how, how kids learn math, mathematical concepts, and wanted to have an interactive framework um using network devices that they could kind of test the kids out and their understanding and then we decided we at that time we had to be on mobile devices and a few other things and um decided that what we needed to do was was build it in canvas they had a certain look and feel they wanted and uh to kind of be kind of cartoonish for the kids to engage them and we also found out that when you're manipulating small objects in um, with your fingers even with little fingers like those guys had um, you really had to be careful about a variety of things, and um, so we, we built it uh, using a, kind of the first version of implementing hot draw in JavaScript. And um, but we learned a few things over the years. I said I've implemented hot draw a few times, and almost every time it's not been in the just to show, hey, here's a drawing tool, but to do something that allows people to direct mm-hmm. manipulate directly manipulate objects. Uh-huh. um so uh, as you can see here just a little bit larger this is a kid he actually had to figure out how to turn uh a circle into six parts six equal parts or five equal parts he was having trouble troubles in the, with it in this particular child but um if I just by drawing lines through a circle and trying to figure out how to turn that into five equal parts and there was a lot of other things we do with them but uh, I want to spend a little bit more time on something uh, I've been doing more recently, which is kind of been our, our second implementation of hot draw. And this is a, a project we're doing for decks.com. It's actually going to beta next week. Um, but uh, it's a deck designer. And let me switch over to uh, show some live stuff rather than just these static um, pictures here. So uh, when you come to come to the deck designer and you start out with, we just figure out most people building uh, decks have a house and a deck they want to attach to it. But um, we allow them to take that deck and move it around, make it larger. Um, and actually, because this is not just a deck designer to see what it looks like, uh, it's to actually build it. It's for do-it-yourself or do things like take off the, the decking. And you can see that oh, there's actually joists in there. And as you as you move it around, you can see those joists. You might see that, oh, because we got a little bit longer, we're not going to get lumber that can span that whole direction. So he realizes they need more lumber. And if I go a little further, he needs he needs some more supports. So suddenly, the beams show up in the middle. Um, we can do some other things. Um, let me put the decking back on. It looks like more like a deck. Um, like take an octagonal figure and um, maybe make that a little larger and decide that we want to place that off the side of the deck but maybe uh, have it go down uh, a few layers and hook a stair to it so we take that stair and uh, stick it over here and um, might decide you know i don't want it like that i actually want the octagon integrated with my deck so let me move the stair over here to get to the ground and move that deck over here it'll snap right on and of course now it's at a different level so we'll need to put some stairs on here and it's not the prettiest deck but um let me raise this up a notch or two so the stairs don't go so far a little nicer and you say, okay, yeah, that's a nice deck. I wonder what it really looks like." And uh, you just switch that over to the 3D view, and you can get a get a view of that. Whoops. There we go. So, uh, and of course, we can get the front view and side views, and all of that was just direct manipulation and uh, we can show dimensions on here if you want to. And, um, notice as we have the dimensions, we move things around and everything moves with it. Or the things that are supposed to move with it, move with it at least. And a um, little bit more going on if I oh actually these stairs are going the opposite direction, it's not gonna show up. Let me uh, let me change this a little bit and make this the octagon go upward. And put some stairs on here again.
0: And um, as I
1: decide I might want to shorten my deck, I get a little alert here telling me there's not three feet of clearance at the bottom of the stairs, which is against building code. Um, and then you can do things like download a permit plan and a materials list and all that kind of stuff. And I don't want to spend too much time demoing that. I want to talk about how we built it. So um, let's see if we can get back to the presentation. So you can see a couple um, screenshots, change the decking, all the stuff I just did here. Um, Showed you the 3D. And uh, then we actually can just say download the permit plan so you can get a permit-ready plan. So if anybody out there wants to design a deck and uh, get a permit-ready plan in a minute, uh, wait for the next few months when it goes live. But uh, say to get a materials list, et cetera. But let's talk about how we, we did this and, and kind of the concepts behind Hot Draw and how we applied this and how you can... Use these same principles to do something that you might want to do. That's directly manipulable, rather than your typical CRUD of putting in your data and um, hoping that something good comes out the other side. So, um, hot draw uh, Ward on his uh, wiki described hot draw, and it's still out there. If you want to go out there and, and listen to his, uh, actually, the initial CRC cards. I don't know if people have ever used CRC cards. Uh, class responsibility collaborator cards, he uh, drew these cards up to describe what was going on. So as he described Hotdoor, I said, you know, we started out with the usual model, view and controller, and uh, the way we implemented these in JavaScript, and these are are way simplified versions of what we've got, just trying to get the gist of it. Uh, The idea of a drawing that you can add and remove figures from them, and you can draw those figures. the the uh, view oops use the mouse okay there we go um, I'm sorry I skipped forward a little bit too far so use my uh... there we go so the view is really just a canvas right however you're going to do your, your uh, HTML view, uh, we use Jade in this case, but um, just have a canvas, and that's what you're drawing on, that's your view. And then when you go to your controller, um, we just did a very simple thing. We have uh, we created a drawing controller. You give it a drawing, and you give it a canvas. And um, we'll, we'll come back to the initialized mouse observers in a few minutes. But basically, you tell the, the drawing control you say draw, and it tells um, it basically t- tells its drawing to draw on top of a on top of a context, and uh, we'll show you how that works in a minute. So um, after looking at the basic model view controller, he points out that the drawing is the main model in in HotDraw. Uh, drawings hold figures and he drew uh, the idea of an abstract class of figure with a few refinements and um, We found over the years that um, Instead of just calling things figures start with a drawable because if you're just drawing figures, that's great but if you have something else that Isn't a figure that has some other semantic meaning we just want to have something that knows how to draw and and um, so we, we came up with this drawable and all he does is have a few properties and uh, he's kind of our abstract class so that before you draw anything it, it sets the context, sets the properties on the context and, and draws it. But um, uh, you can do something as simple like a polygon figure, give it a few vertices. Uh, you'll see here that we have, a, we created a class called a polygon and you tell the polygon figure to draw itself and he just does the right calls on canvas context to to draw that so the uh, other thing Ward points out is drawing controllers collaborate with tools to make changes now he said he didn't make a card for an abstract tool but we found out that we needed an abstract tool so we built one and. Um, The basic idea of the tool is it knows about its controller. Um, He can get to his drawing through the controller. Uh, When the tool activates, he keeps track of what was the previous tool on the controller. So he can set it back. And uh, notice here in our tool, we have draw. And we also have uh, mouse down, mouse move, and mouse up. And the default does absolutely nothing. But when you get a selection tool, it gets a little more exciting. Selection tool actually has a group of handles and uh, he'll figure out what uh, what got selected based on something like click, putting a mouse down and he would find out the handles and, uh, and then do the right thing, passing it onto the handles because uh, all we really do in the controller, when mouse down, mouse move, mouse up or whatever like that happens, he just passes that onto the tool. And the tool himself may end up passing those things on to handles, and um, so you know we have an abstract handle um, that understands things like move from to and draw, and we made lots of different kinds of handles. And actually, the, one of the most interesting tidbits that Ward wrote in his initial hot draw design was, finally, locator is a point substitute that knows how to propagate changes between related figures. For example, when a line connects to the corner of a box figure and the box figure moves, an updated message propagates through a locator to the line. Now, it's interesting if you read further on that, Ward says, actually, we didn't actually use locator in the initial hot draw. Um, but we found that it's a pretty powerful point. And uh, there was a pun intended there. So a key point is that you know geometry is the foundation of many domains. And um, a point in common with drawings of all sorts. And it's also the connection to many black boxes. For example, browser events, right? They'll give you x and y coordinates. Um, if you get gestures or, or anything else, um, you'll have those things. And what I would argue is they're really the things to test, not uh, what's actually showing up on the screen. If you've ever tried to test something that's on a screen, you've found that it's uh, kind of hard to do that usually, because what's going on the screen is usually in a black box. So how does this, what does it all have to do with objects and Canvas? Um, Well, there's a couple of things that I think are really important if you're doing object-oriented JavaScript or object-oriented anything. Um, Two really powerful tools I've found over the years are self-encapsulation and lazy initialization. And let me talk about that a little bit. So uh, suppose we have a point and, you know, in in the geometry space that we all learned in school, uh, X goes right and Y goes bottom to top, but because we're computer scientists now, Y goes down. Um, but either way, it's still the same concept. Am I seeing? There's somebody who has a feed broken. Are we? Are we good to go? I'm gonna continue unless somebody breaks in and stops me. Um, okay, everything's good. All right. So, um, so we have a point. And the naive user might just say, you know, it's a, we want an object in JavaScript. We just do something like that. We, we create a variable P and give it properties X and Y. And, you know, after all, we can use that to draw an arc or a circle in this case. Um, and we can draw that on a canvas. And that's all we need. But if you think about uh, the geometry behind here, uh, you might want to approach it a little bit differently. We we actually created a point or proto, a class or point, a prototype called point. And then you do things like draw it this way. But instead of using the property X and Y, we made a function call. Um, there, I know that there's a defined property in some versions of JavaScript. We found that that's actually a little bit slower than what we want. Uh, at least it has been. Things might have changed yesterday as things changed. But uh, uh, you know the idea of sending a message uh, is kind of fundamental to object. Way back when Smalltalk did objects, we'd send messages. We didn't call functions. But uh, it's equivalent, basically. So notice that by, by sending x and y, or treating x and y as functions, what you can get. Uh, we have encapsulation of, of a point. And you look at this and say, well, you know, there's no real benefit to that. We know there's an X and Y. Why not just refer to them directly as properties? Um, well, that's exposing the inners of the object. And um, as soon as you start doing that, especially in JavaScript, you have to go back and if you ever change your mind later. you got to change all your properties to, to function calls, which can be done. But... Um, Usually it doesn't have to last too long until you realize you might benefit from that. So, for example, if you wanted to have a polar coordinate, which comes in handy when you're doing certain things, um, and you you can use X and Y there also, and you don't have to care whether you have a point or whether you have a polar coordinate. You just ask for X and Y, and then you can do other things. Uh, We also found there's lots of other ways to get things besides just the simple points. Um, Here's an example of an edge relative locator. give it an edge, uh, a point from two locators, one locator to another locator. And and you give it a distance and then you can ask for X or Y by just asking for X or Y and it can calculate uh, how far along that edge that locator is. Um, or you can decide that, you know, that that function is a little bit expensive, so you use lazy initialization to uh, return the last x we calculated, unless x has been wiped out based on some other event. So by doing that, um, you actually get a lot of uh, a lot of power. Um, so we uh, there's lots of ways you could do this. We have our own implementation. But uh, basically, you make a locator class or prototype with all the methods you'd want a locator to have. X, Y, and maybe some other things. Um, make it the prototype for all the specific types of locators. And uh, always refer to the properties by calling functions or sending messages. Uh, we even do it internally to the object, calling self-encapsulation. and. Um, then you can do things like add two locators together, and you can either add them by saying, okay, well, assume when I add two things, I get a point, or you can say, I don't really care what I get as long as I understand X and Y. So you could just return a function if you wanted to. Um, again, we don't really care, but the point is that uh, lots of locators can be very very beneficial, and um, here's some of the locators we've come up with in order to build uh, the deck designer an edge intersection locator edge relative locators uh both fixed edge fixed distance from an edge and whoa what just happened there somehow my jumped way back and
0: Let's catch up a little bit here. Okay. So, yeah, so
1: fixed edge locators, proportional edge locators, so something's halfway down the edge. Uh, A normal to edge locator that says, okay, somewhere along the edge to a certain point and offset by a certain amount in the normal direction. Um, Polar coordinates, relative locators. Uh, We got the 3D locators. So uh, you can take an XY position and add some relative Z to it. Or you can have a three point uh, XYZ locator, and you only care about X and Y, or you only care about X and Z, you only care about Y and Z. Or even a three source relative locator that gets X from one place, Y from another place, and Z from another place. And using this, um, Okay, sorry about that. Uh, Using this, we can uh, actually get some pretty powerful stuff. Um, And in in this, we also came up with geometric models in addition to locators uh, an edge, a relative edge, uh, something that's some subset of another edge, um, polygons, rectangles, circles, and we added some 3D things cubes, extruded polygons. and a triangle mesh to actually do a lot of the math that's needed to display it. So, um, key point is you know, the geometry is something that matters to the domain model. And the geometry, at some level, is what you're rendering. In fact, if you look at just about everything on the deck designer, um, almost everything on there is a polygon. a um, little bit of text, a few lines, and a uh, couple circles when you get to footings, which I didn't really spend any time showing you. But uh, that's what that's the the figures is what you render on the screen on the canvas. So these these things know how to display those figures but the uh, geometry is really um, used elsewhere. So as it's shown here, we have a closed-shaped figure that um, is an abstract class for some other things like a polygon figure and a circle figure that uh, you can do things like move it, you can ask if it contains some certain things, you can ask it for handles, and of course you can draw. and um, subclasses would would do that work and that's just really a matter of simply figuring out which call you have to make on the canvas context to draw the right thing so as i point out that you know the geometry are what we're rendering um we actually added a few methods to uh to standard context so we can do things like tell just to draw a circle um you don't have to do that don't try this at home we're trained professionals so uh, the geometry is what you're rendering, but uh, it's also our domain model using the geometry. So, so our deck frames are basically all derived from some number of locators. And those locators might be relative to some other reference locator, for example, the corner of a house. Uh, it could be the corner of another deck. So, um, And we also use things like material specs um, for our deck frame to tell us what kind of material to use. And actually that material also supplies some dimensions. For example, we're using 2x10 versus a 2x8 for a frame. Um, And the joists and the boards and the posts and all of these things can be placed by simple formulas, locators, and material specs. So uh, let's put all this together, how that kind of comes together. So this is a a Jasmine test. All of the entire system is all test driven. Um, And I'm just describing a rectangle deck attached to a house. So if we look at what we're doing here, really simply, we create a new deck. Uh, We create a house, a rectangular house frame. And uh, tell it we're we're picking 480 by 300. This is in inches. We could use other units. That's what we chose. And a rectangular house frame basically just takes that width and length and assumes a reference point of zero zero that the your world is going to be in reference to the corner of the house. So he creates a few locators. Starts out with a reference point. Uh, being a relative locator, and uh, we could later change that reference point to something else if we wanted to. Which is so why we start out with a relative locator on point zero zero zero, and uh, then we just create four new locators for its vertices. And uh, the rule the rule for our house frame is that it it goes basically north of the uh, north of our starting point, so we kind of go up from there. So as we draw that house, or as we don't even, we're we're not even drawing at this point, we're just having a concept of the house. That house basically is relative to those four locators. Uh, It has those properties, it can have other properties too. It does have other properties, but uh, we're all gonna focus on that right now. So uh, we add that house to our deck and then we create another rectangular deck frame and a rectangular deck frame, uh, we chose to make the uh, the frames go south of zero. So I gave it those two dimensions and does a very similar thing, but he just draws in the opposite direction. And then we, uh, we can do something like move him by 24 in the x direction and zero in the y direction. And when we do that, of course, uh, he just does a couple things here like tells his reference point to move and when we told his reference point to move everything else moved that was uh just on the relative locator to move his x y and z and since all of the other locators were relative to him he just moves so now we have our a rectangle moved over there and now i tell the rectangle to check attachments this is gets a little hairier um but when we check those attachments um leaving a bunch of code out here, but he says, okay, what are the target attachments? Based on the location, he find out finds out what else is there. And he happens to find out that, oh, this deck happens to be at the edge of a, or the, house, the deck happens to be at the edge of a house. So that gives us a deck to house edge attachment. And um, that deck to house edge att- attachment does something to figure out where his relative locators are. And he knows that uh, because of where he is, that he's going to, um, because he's uh, going horizontal rather than vertical, um, he's setting up his proper X and Y sources for his new location. So now all of a sudden we expect that after you do that, that your, your deck is actually attached to your house and we wanna then check did that actually Happen. So I now take my uh, house, I, I record where my rectangle's box was. I now move the one of the house's edges by by 10, and hopefully the rectangle, the, the frame moved also. And our test passed, and it does. And we see that a few things have changed. Now, notice when we did that, the moving, moving the edge, we actually changed some of the relative locators of the house. Everything else moved, it all works. So the cool thing is, we can build our domain, test all this stuff, all the geometry has nothing to do with seeing anything on the screen, um, and we can make sure that everything works. So, what? How does that map to actually rendering it on the screen? Uh, well, we this is where we get back. And we have a deck view controller and a, uh, we'll jump into that in a second. So we look at uh, our deck view controller, and I think earlier we said our, our controller takes a, uh, a, our drawing controller took a drawing and a canvas. Our deck view controller is not much more than that, but he, he happens to hold on to the deck also. It's convenient for other reasons. So we give it a deck, a drawing, and a canvas. And We get our drawing by asking our deck for its top view And he just gives me a new deck drawing on the deck and the deck drawing Isn't really complicated He just asks each of his components of his deck uh, He sorts them by their z e level, so the things on top show up on top and um, Gets a figure for each of those And the deck view controller just subclasses, our drawing controller, and that's our that's our starting point. So how does that actually work? Well, our deck view controller on load uh, goes out there and looks for an element by ID top view. And then he says, oh, if I get one of those, then I'll use that canvas. I can go out and build my house the same way I've been building it and tell the controller, here's your top view, which is a drawing, and here's your canvas, which is what you're going to draw on, and I can tell the controller to draw. So um, a really interesting thing that's happening here is, uh, again, the canvas is just an element that allows you to draw on it, and it's really hard to test. What did I just draw on that thing? But our drawing ourself, uh, our model, holds the figures. And our controller captures events and manipulates the view, or does it? Let's look at the piece I didn't show you earlier. Um, Initialized mouse observers on the drawing controller just gets the canvas and says, OK, I want to start listening for certain events. And he maps those events to mouse down, and if you scroll down further, which we're not going to, uh, mouse up, mouse move, whatever, and just passes that on. So the interesting thing is if drawing controller, if you have no canvas, you don't initialize any mouse observers, and drawing never happens. So you can test everything besides these two things. Once you've figured out how to get your mouse observers working, and the fact that the drawing controller is just telling all the figures to draw themselves, you can test everything else you want. So really, uh, what we're dealing with here is we're just manipulating the drawings and the figures and or the underlying model. And we're really not manipulating a canvas at all. The canvas is just the place we're painting the result on. So we can test our result before we paint it. Um, and the event the event observers strip out the position. So we can also do things like test the controllers, the tools, and the handle. right? Simply create a controller outside of any HTML element, test what happens when you send those pseudo events. Like this, I can describe my drawing controller. Uh, I create a new drawing. I create a new controller without passing it a canvas, and I ask the controller for it, for its active tool. And I do something like move the mouse down and see if the active tool got the mouse down. He sure did. And uh, if my active tool is a selection tool. I can test things like that. Create again, create a drawing, create a create a figure, um, create a test handle, create another polygon. That's right. So I got a triangle and another polygon up there. I add them both to the drawing. I set up my controller, my tool, and now I say if the tool's mouse goes down, what happens? It should select a handle, and it should be the handle that I expect it to be selecting because I put the mouse down at the point that I wanted to. Have happened, so I'm testing everything as if the mouse down went down at a particular point and by doing that I don't have all I have to do is one point in time just make sure that my, my mouse observers are observing the right thing and I'm mapping my my uh, x and y events to the proper uh, dimensions and I can test everything else and do the same thing with the handles uh, It's all the same principle. Create create a couple locators, create an edge. This is my edge handle. And I want to find out that if I tell the handle to move in a particular direction, uh, we want to only make sure that edges move perpendicular to their orientation. And it it tests and that that all works too. So uh, that's, you know, we're testing things like, when I go back to my desktop, that We're basically saying, what happens when I move that edge? We're testing it all. Um, We can't really test that the canvas got rendered correctly, but we can test that everything that happened was supposed to happen so that it should render the canvas correctly. So uh, in the midst of that, and you know, I showed you the frames, when are the bands and the joists and the surface boards and all those things created? They basically only get created when we need to draw them. Um, so most of the deck frames you see, we don't really even have care about the joists and all until we need them. Or I said when we need to draw them or we need to put them in a material list, when we need to do put them on a permit plan, wherever. Um, It basically lazy-initializes the figures when we're trying to draw them, and that's what I'm doing at this point in uh, what I just showed you was actually just making the frame and and, uh, drawing it. Um, And if it's trying to draw joists and figure, joists and deck boards, then it needs to create those. But um, I can just ask a deck frame for its bands and ask each band for its figure. Well, if that Band isn't there yet, he'll get created. Um, but I can just start changing my deck frame, size, shape. I can trash my bands and then just recreate them over and start over again. So uh, for example, here, uh, my deck frame, um, I ask for bands. I say, if I, if I have bands, give it them. If I don't have bands, uh, figure out where my edges go figure out what my material spec is for my bands. The bands, by the way, are the edges of the frame that hold up the deck. Um, And then I create a new band uh, based on where the edge begins and the edge ends and the material spec that I need. And then I give it some offsets um, to uh, offset from center of where I want that band to go. So as we look at that a little further, Um, the band is just uh, a subclass of material and we're basically just calculating the vertices of where that band's going to go based on that and you'll see here that he's just everything is proportional to another locator so a lot of the reshaping we do as we reshape the the deck if those bands are already there they just move with when the locators move automatically and if I ever need it in 3D, I extrude it. That's what that extrusion length is. And we'll see that in a little bit. Um, any material can turn itself into an extruded polygon. Um, that works for us because we're dealing with boards on deck frames. And they all happen to be extruded polygons. Three-dimensional, uh, not, not, not anything fancy, no splines or anything weird like that. But once I have that 3D figure, I can get the XC figure um, to see the front view uh, or the side view. And um, I can get the shape in 3D if I need it. So those are all happening uh, as as needed. And if I look at um, this frame and see what's really going on, just kind of a little more graphical picture of what's going on there's there's the frame it's the frame is made up of just a few locators and one of two of those locators make up an edge and the material spec just tells me things like it's a, it's a two by ten which uh, has a width of one and a half inches and a depth of 9.25 inches and based on that I can create four more locators that says where that band Comes from like drawing, drawing from the width and the top. The fact that I'm looking at it from the top. Um, he says, "Okay, that's one and a half uh, wide." And based on that one and a half wide, I draw my locator off of the original locator, one and a half away, and do that at both ends. And now I've got uh, my band, and I can do that around the rest of it. And now I get to the joists, and the joists do the same thing. They just they go along that edge, and they decide that they're going to put each of their each of the ends of the joists uh, every 16 inches right down the line, and those are all created. And as I'm again, as I move my corners, if I if I move that corner of a frame, everything else just moves with it. Right. So uh, again, due to lazy initialization, there's no reason to ask for a 3D version at this point. I'm just trying to draw the deck. Um, only the x and y vertices are really used to draw. It does ask for the for the z um, just to make sure he knows the a deck on top of another deck. I'm, I'm only drawing the top one, doing it in the proper order. Um, and the Z coordinate may have been needed when we were attaching components. So trying to figure out where the stairs go and how many steps go down and all that kind of stuff. we got to figure out where, where those Z goes. But again, it's only using those as it needs them. Uh, nowhere during that time did it ever need to figure out what is the, what does the 3D mesh look like. Uh, so once that material is located, it can be extruded into the 3D on demand. Um, any 2D perspectives, so faces of the extruded polygon can be retrieved, so I can look at the front view, the side views, whatever. Um, the same locators and shapes can be used to draw the perspective. Uh, so I, you know, just, I'm looking at the same locator from the xz view, and I have, um, you know, several coordinates to give you what that polygon is going to look like from that side. So I can draw it on a canvas, but because I've abstracted this, not only can I draw it on a canvas, I can draw it in PDF. Uh, we use PDFKit, which is a brilliant uh, JavaScript uh, front-end to, to PDFs. And um, thankfully, it uh, it used the X and Y in the same direction as our screen does, unlike PDF. Uh, naturally, it did, the, it did the inversion for us. But uh, we can take those same locators and say, let's draw. Let's use those locators to draw uh, the permit plan. And then we can do the same thing, use those same coordinates to get our 3D mesh and show it in WebGL. Uh, if we wanted to, we can convert it to SG- SVG or any other system that happens to use geometry, right? <laughs> Which is uh, just about anything that's drawing anything anywhere. So uh, in summary you know in javascript when we used uh, an oo language we can build pretty powerful models uh, i encourage you all to leverage encapsulation leverage polymorphism and leverage lazy initialization to do that and if the geomet- geometric concepts are realized the models could be rendered in many many ways and notice here, as I already pointed out, the DOM and the event handling can be a thin veneer so that you can test the rest. Um, notice I marked here that you can move the whole thing to Node and do it all on the server if you want to, uh, which we actually we actually are going to be doing. A lot of the the rendering, the the, the permit plans and stuff are going to happen on the server rather than on the on the client, for example. Same model works in both places. So that's uh, that's it for now. Uh, Chuck, I think we
0: have about 10 minutes for questions and answers. Yep. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, switch over to Q&A mode. That way people can uh, ask you uh, questions by enabling their microphones. And then um, while we're doing that, then we'll start asking questions out of the chat. So if you have a question, go ahead and click the Ask a Question button, and uh, we'll get that asked. Uh, While we're waiting for people to raise their hand, uh, Stan Fisher is asking, have you tried using WebGL instead of Canvas? If so, is it faster or slower?
1: Uh, So the 3D view is WebGL. So uh, let me switch over to this. This is all WebGL um, over here. So we just turned our 3D models into WebGL components. So I'm not sure if it said faster or slower than what?
0: Probably than canvas.
1: Uh, well, I mean, WebGL is um, really you're just drawing WebGL on top of the canvas at the end of the day. <laughs>
0: hmm. All right, uh, Harold Short asks, does changing material type cause the layout to change, like spacing between joists? If so, can you show us?
1: Yeah, uh, actually, in this release, we're not giving the user um, options on that. But they do have options on things like uh, the footing size. I didn't show you the footings, uh, the railing height. So uh, if I just change that to um, 42 inches, and I guess you didn't see the previous version, but those are 42-inch rails now. Um,
0: And is that not working? The top view. Whoa. There we go.
1: Change it to 36 inches. Trying to change it to 36 inches. locking up on me. Demo land.
0: <laughs> well, we'd know if your internet went out. It worked. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. The next question is. Um, what would it take to do a section view across an arbitrary plane it would require projection transformation of faces
1: yes um, right so we can uh, kind of do that but uh, yeah I mean it's really about about your model and how much math you want to put into your model uh, but yeah we, we definitely have some, uh, some more complex math in certain places and um Others were just letting, like WebGL takes care of all that the 3D space. You just tell it, here's your stuff, and as you rotate things around, rotate your camera around, it takes care of it for you. But um, you can do it mathematically if you wanted to.
0: Cool. Okay, OSM, who I'm gonna pronounce as awesome, is this source available anywhere?
1: Uh, No, well, uh, certainly the next source is not. Uh, We are planning on, uh, at some point, taking some of the base uh, hot draw type of stuff, and we will make that public. Uh, we don't have a particular schedule on that right now. We're, we're trying to get the beta out. And uh, we've designed it such that there's a different layer for that, but we haven't uh, spent the time to, to verify that and document it and you know provide, a, provide the nice demos and stuff you'd want to do to, to show that. Um, check back on uh, role models GitHub account. And uh, in, in a few months, and it's there.
0: All right. Uh, Aaron Klander says, in your opinion, what is the most challenging part of doing OO in JavaScript?
1: Um, boy. Um, yeah, you know, there were certainly some things that we had to get used to. Some of the way that constructors work when you start inheriting a few different layers down, uh, well, I mean, the functions are you're inheriting prototypes uh, and and that that was probably the biggest challenge. Um, the other is that there's no good tools that we found yet that will show you the hierarchy nicely. So you know there were times when we're trying to trying to uh, do something and we have you know like uh, an octagonal deck frame is you know three levels deep in hierarchy, and there's no good way that we found yet, um, and we probably haven't looked hard enough, but uh, no good way to say, okay, <laughs> this method came from uh, two layers up, you know, we just have to know the hierarchy and know where to look. So that's, uh, so really the tools would probably be the biggest challenge, so um, the, the constructor issues, we eventually figured out how to work around that after getting did it a couple times. But uh, you know, once you've, uh, once you got past the constructor issues, it all works beautifully.
0: All right, Harold Short is asking, do you code in ES6 or something and
1: file? Uh, no, we did all this in straight JavaScript. Uh, we thought about CoffeeScript, um, and when we started this whole thing, uh, yeah, this just, just didn't feel like there was a compelling reason to uh, do anything different besides JavaScript. I don't see any reason might not work in any of those other things, but we just didn't.
0: Can you share some resources to learn how to start embracing the OO paradigm? That's by Federico.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, there's there's been a lot of good books in the past about objects. You know, unfortunately, once everybody started using object-oriented programming, people stopped teaching about how to do it well. (laughs) Back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, that was all about it. It's, it's a different paradigm in programming. And uh, unfortunately, that didn't really make it into the schools very often. There's very few schools that I know that do a very good job of teaching object-oriented anything. Um, there, there, um, there was a book by... Um, uh, why am I blanking out his name? Uh, Dave West, from Microsoft Press, did a few years ago. Uh, about object oriented, it wasn't JavaScript, but it was an object oriented book. And then there's a uh, there's a classic one by David Taylor that was written in the late '80s. Um, in uh, in Ruby, um, uh, Sandy Metz recently built uh, wrote a very good book about objects in Ruby. Um, I haven't found a particularly great object-oriented javascript tag. I mean, part of it, you know, I kind of grew up uh, in the 80s in small talk, so I don't think I have to spend a whole lot of time learning how to think object-oriented now since I've been doing it for a long time, but uh, those would be some of the places I would look for those books. Somebody else out there might have another good suggestion if they, they found a recent one that they found helpful.
0: Yeah, there's a link in the chat for an OOP and JavaScript book Yeah, for what that's worth. It's always nice to see examples in whatever language you're actually using. Right. All right, well, um, it looks like, okay, Uh, have you tried TypeScript and what's your opinion about it?
1: Uh, I've heard other people talking about TypeScript, and I'm not uh, inclined to shift uh, TypeScript. I mean, I, I'm very comfortable with uh, non-typed JavaScript, um, but that doesn't mean it's not doesn't have its good good uses.
0: All right. With this application, did you run into any issues around browser memory or performance? And if so, how did you tackle them?
1: Yeah. uh, Browser memory, not so much. Uh, Performance, we, uh, you know, using a lot of the lazy initialization techniques and then just caching, um, that got us the biggest performance bang for the buck. Uh, When we're calculating all those joists and everything, it started slowing down. We started building decent sized decks. Then we found just by um, caching those locators, uh, a lot of it came from calculating the, the angles and the edge locators. And if you just cache... Um, cache it when you calculate it. Uh, it it ended up we, we got huge performance benefits from doing that. So another benefit of lazy initialization, uh, we found out where where it was uh, where it was spending its time on you know these same methods time and time again, and just said okay can we cache the can we cache the answers and get some benefit out of that? And we tried that. It took uh, about three hours one night to get a huge performance increase from that which is typically what I found is you make it run and then you make it right. And often you make it, if you've, if you've done a good job of encapsulating, then you just figure out where, where you need to do some shortcuts and do some caching. Usually in, a, in a, just a handful of methods.
0: All right. Well, it is seven o'clock here, nine o'clock Eastern. So, uh, we're going to end the Q and A here. Thank you, Ken. Uh, it was really interesting to watch. And, uh, you know, everybody in the chat, if you could give Ken a virtual round of applause. we um, we we'll, I'm going to set it back to presenter mode for a minute so that uh, Rahat can get uh, ready to go, and then we will be back in a few minutes. Thanks, Thanks. Ken. Thanks. Thank you. Uh,
1: it doesn't want to...